you can turn back to the psalm we read there, Psalm 45. And I would like us to sing to Dick together about verse 2, where the author of the psalm says, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace has poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. <clears throat> the prophet Isaiah said many wonderful things in his book. And one of the things he does say to his readers, and his readers were probably a bit downcast and perplexed at what life was like because they were facing all kinds of threats. But he does say to them, your eyes shall see the king in his beauty. Isaiah's prophecy begins by mentioning four kings. And yet in his book, he doesn't say much about them unless pointing out their inabilities. Whether their inabilities are caused by death or indecisiveness or just huge problems. Doesn't say much about earthly kings. Although they could be seen every day. But instead he points to another king, doesn't he? A very unusual king. A king with a supernatural birth. A king who would have a, a death marked by incredible suffering face mar marred more than any man. And yet a king who would reign forever. And he said to his listeners, your eyes shall see him. That was a message of great comfort, wasn't it? summarizes his entire message. Of course, I suppose people should ask, how will we see him? And what will we have to do to see him? And so on. That kind of um, prospect is not limited to the book of Isaiah. It's found throughout the book of Psalms. Take Psalm 22, as we know. Half is about somebody going through incredible suffering. And the second half of the psalm is about the same person experiencing incredible glory. Or we could turn to Psalm 72. And there's a description of a king it describes his, the length of his kingdom that will last as long as the sun 
and it describes the breadth of his kingdom. It will be from the river to the ends of the earth. And here in Psalm 45, they're being told, aren't they? We're invited to look at the king. Of course, a certain frame of heart is required to do this. And the psalmist tells us what kind of heart is needed in verse 1. He says, my heart overflows. But he's not overflowing in the sense that we are, if we take a glass and just turn the tap on slowly and kind of eventually the water will overflow the glass. I mean, that's not his picture. His picture is one of bubbling up. There's excitement. There's expectation. His heart is overflowing with a a pleasing theme. This prospect is going to describe the king It delights him. The fact that he can say anything about the king astonishes him. But it's more than just astonishment. There's intense pleasure. It's almost as if he's, we don't know who the author was, one of the sons of Korah, but um, it's almost as if they found the ultimate song. The song about the king. And he doesn't just speak about the king. He addresses his verses, as he says in verse 1, to the king. This psalm is a kind of dedication. A dedication from the author to the king. And it's, he finds that as he thinks about the king, that he speaks. Because he says, my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. I mean, a ready scribe is a person that I would suggest is an individual who knows how to spell What's the point of being a scribe if you cannot spell? You'd be telling the speaker to slow down or even asking him, how do you spell that word you've just used? But in this case, it's a ready scribe. Whatever word he wants to use will just flow out of his heart. So it's a certain state of heart required to do this. And of course, there's always a great, as you can see from the end of the psalm, there's a a wonderful expectation. And you can only have this expectation because of who he's writing about. He says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. So there he is whenever he wrote it. Sometime B.C. And as he looked ahead, 
to all the ages that were to come. He expected his words to be accurate and useful in all subsequent generations. Isn't that extraordinary? Well, who else could that be, can be said? And not only does he think it would be useful for all future generations, but he thinks it will be suitable for all nations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. He's actually extending his vision beyond the limits of time. And saying that the king that he's going to write about, that whose name will be remembered in all generations, that he will be praised forever and ever. Extraordinary person he must be writing about, isn't it? Same person that Isaiah spoke about when he said that people would see the king in his beauty. Of course, we know who it is. We know it's Jesus, the Messiah, the one who was promised. And here in verse 2, the unknown of Samus says about Jesus, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Ever said that to Jesus? I mean, he's speaking to him directly. And he says to Jesus, I love what I hear from you because grace is poured upon your lips. And as he looks at Jesus, he says, God has blessed you forever. Appropriate things for us to say to Jesus, isn't it? You're the most beautiful of human beings. You say the most wonderful things. And you're going to be blessed, happy, honored, forever and ever. In comparison to, to Jesus, everyone else pales into insignificance. I'd just like us to think about the three things that the psalmist mentions in this verse. The handsome Savior and the gracious word and his endless blessing. With each of them, I want to ask three questions. With regard to him being handsome, why is he handsome? In what ways is he handsome? Who else is handsome? But the psalmist does have others in mind when he says that Jesus is more handsome than them.
And he's not saying he's more handsome than the worst. Rather, he's saying he's more handsome than the best. So just think of these things. The word handsome occurs twice in this verse. In the original language, I mean. You are handsome, handsome. Of course, to make a sense, we put in the word most. You are the most handsome. But um, kind of handsome, handsome, or beautiful, beautiful, stresses the intensity, the depth, the degree of his beauty. So why is he handsome? Well, we have to ask ourselves, what is this psalm about? It's about Jesus. But what about Jesus? Because there's lots of things that could be said about Jesus. And uh, as we look at this particular psalm, there's no word of his death. From the perspective of the psalm, his death is behind him. It's now looking at his current location and what's going to happen from there. And the current location, the psalm's a prophecy. And the current location in the psalm is the exaltation of Jesus. He's been glorified. I don't know what comes into your mind when you think of the word glorified. But I think a reasonable alternative is beautified, made attractive, made just like a magnet. That you just, those who are in the vicinity of this beauty can't take their eyes off him. And up there in heaven today, that's what's happening. There's millions in heaven. Spirits of just men made perfect. Myriads and myriads of angels. But where are they all looking? They're looking at Jesus. And they are attracted by his glorification. So his The beauty that's in mind here is current beauty. But, of course, we know that his glorification, his exaltation, was his reward. His reward for what he did when he was down here on earth. And what did he do when he was down here on earth? Well, the Apostle John tells us that if everything was recorded, not even, the whole, not even the whole world would be big enough to have them all written down. But in a real sense, the really important thing that he did was his death. To everybody else, death is something that happens to them. But in, with Jesus, it was why he came. He came to die because in his death he would do something extraordinary. And in his death, for example, we know that 
he defeated the powers of darkness. Paul tells us that he made a show of them openly. Written above a condemned person's head normally was the crime for which he was guilty. And literally above the head of Jesus was his crime. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. But spiritually, Paul says in Colossians that something else was nailed above the head of Jesus. And what was nailed above the head of Jesus was our sins. And of course, these sins were the devil's weapons by which he could attack us and request that we be punished for them. But we cannot be punished for them because they are nailed to the cross. The crimes for which he died were our sins. And there he paid the penalty and removed all sorts of um, creaturely condemnation from us. So even the powers of darkness, they are silenced by the cross, by the death of Jesus. It wasn't just the, the noise of the demonic host that he heard. You know, sometimes if we're doing something important and other people start shouting at us, we get distracted from the task we're engaged in. But Jesus, when he was on the cross, and all these enemy hordes were ranging, all raging against him, it didn't distract him for one second. But what else was he going to bear? I mean, these onslaughts by the powers of darkness were mighty, but they were not all mighty. All of them put together got nowhere near almightiness. But Jesus had to face the Almighty. When the Father's wrath came on him. And what agony, what distress, what pain he had to endure. If we had seen him at Calvary, unfortunately, by divine arrangement, became all dark. But if we had seen him there, what would we have seen? His form mangled more than all the sons of men. Would we say he's got a beautiful future? Probably not. But we have to remember at least one man saw the king in his beauty. More than one. The criminal saw it. 
Imagine speaking to Jesus as he dies and requesting to be remembered. And imagine Jesus in the waste tip of Jerusalem speaking about a garden. But he did. He's going to the place of beauty because that's what paradise is. The best garden possible. The Roman soldier saw it as well. Surely this is the Son of God. He was a veteran of many battles. But he had never seen a battle like this one. But he gives us his verdict. And Jesus, because he suffered in those ways, was raised from the dead as his reward. That would have been a great reward. But it's not the end of his progression. He was going to ascend to heaven. And there in heaven be glorified. He prayed for that, of course. There in John 17, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. So that's why he's handsome. He's been glorified because of what he did when he suffered here on earth. And in what ways is he handsome? Now, as we look at him, well, he's handsome in his status, and he's handsome in his position, and he's handsome in his intentions. Think of his status. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. He's now the Son of Man, his favorite title. I wonder why he called himself the Son of Man. It may have been because he was a real man, no doubt about that, but it kind of points to a real sense of optimism in him because the Son of Man is the one who's going to ascend to the Father's throne. And that was the vision that was before Jesus throughout his whole earthly journey. The day would come in his experience when he, in the clouds of heaven, he would be taken before the Ancient of days and received from him the kingdoms of the world. And there he is now, status, all authority given to him in heaven and on earth. And what has he got that for? Why does Jesus have all power? Well, the psalm tells us one reason for that. And that is to find a bride. Because the psalm does talk about that. There's two beautiful people in the psalm. There's the king and there's the bride. Because the day is coming, says the psalmist, when the king will earnestly desire the beauty of his bride. And of course that beauty she's going to have is just Christ-likeness. 
But anyway, that's his intention, to find one. And he does that, doesn't he? That's why he found those of us who are Christians. He found us because he wants to make us Christ-like. And that day will come when that will happen. His Great Commission. Why should we engage in the Great Commission? Well, obviously we should do it because he tells us, but he gives a reason why we should do it. And the reason why we should do it is because he has all power. That just means he's going to be successful. Go and, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. What an incredible beauty he's got, isn't it? And that's what he's doing today throughout the world. We don't see hearts getting changed. But he sees them. And all over the world today, that's been taking place. Amazing. And thirdly, who else is handsome? Well, we can just go through a list. Isaiah the prophet was handsome, but not as handsome as Jesus. Aaron the priest was handsome, dressed in his garments of glory and beauty, but he's not as handsome as Jesus. David the king was handsome, the man after God's own heart. But he's not as handsome as Jesus. Apostle Paul was handsome, wasn't he? God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. A most beautiful Christian, but not as handsome as Jesus. Mary of Bethany, when she poured her treasure over his head, she did a beautiful act. But she's not as beautiful as Jesus. And all the angels in heaven never sinned. They've been progressing in holiness throughout their entire existence. But all of them together are not as beautiful as Christ. He is the fairest of the sons of men. It's a hymn that says, Majestic sweetness sits enthroned upon the Savior's brow. His head with radiant glories crowned. His lips with grace overflow. It's taken from the sun. No mortal can with him compare among the sons of men. Fairer is he than all the fair who fill the heavenly train. I read these words of Rutherford. I'm sure you've heard them of them. He's thinking about the beauty of Christ. 
O fair sun and fair moon, fair stars and fair flowers, and fair roses and fair lilies, but oh, ten thousand thousand times fairer, Lord Jesus. Alas, I have wronged him in the, making the comparison this way. O oh, black sun and moon, but O oh, fair Lord Jesus. O oh, black flowers and black lilies and roses, but O oh, fair, fair, ever fair Lord Jesus. O oh, black heaven, but O oh, fair Christ. O oh, black angels, but O oh, surpassingly fair Lord Jesus. What do you think of him? Really? What do you think of him? Or even a more startling question. Do you think of him? How often do you think of him? You know, even as Christians, we can be taken up with salvation and forget the Savior. And then there's his gracious words. Grace is poured into your lips. When does he say them? Where do they come from? How powerful are they? I mean, after all, speech is going on all the time. And most of it is ignored. When does this beautiful king speak his gracious word? Well, of course, he spoke in the past. When he brought the universe into existence, and that was a, something full of beauty. And he spoke when he was here on earth. And even his enemies said, never a man spoke like this man. But here he is speaking now. And how does he speak in the present? What does Jesus have to say? And of course, what he has to say is found in the gospel. Isn't it? This message that he, that he sends his servants and others to declare, but it's actually him in them that declares it. I mean, Paul says that to the Ephesians, doesn't he? That Christ came to them and preached to them. I mean, physically, Jesus never set foot near Ephesus. But spiritually, when the gospel went there, Jesus was there, speaking powerfully and effectively 
and all these people in Ephesus. A month before this, they were bowing down to Diana. But now, they had been enlightened, and they were praising Jesus. And the reason why they were praising Jesus was because he spoke to them. I mean, that's how people are saved. Jesus speaks to them. He also speaks to his people. There's lots of examples about that. We can think of the seven churches of Asia. Some of these churches were good. And he had something comforting to say to them. Some of these churches were not what they should have been. But he still gave a promise to them. And even the one that was totally bankrupt, the church in Laodicea, he promised any individual in that congregation that they could have a superb meal, that they could sup with him. He speaks. His words, they're full of grace. Where do they come from? They come from the Father, don't they? The Father is the one pouring them in. And pouring is a very graphic word, isn't it? Grace is poured upon your lips. The voice of the Heavenly Father speaks through His Son. and invites sinners to become his children. And when they become his children, he gives them great and precious promises. I read this comment about the word poured. It means to be poured entirely Where has God the Father poured entirely his grace? Where is the container for this grace that is poured out? Imagine if God the Father poured all his grace into one of us. What could we do with it? It was said to us, you help everyone that asks you for it. We're not capable of doing it. But Jesus is. And we can't see the grace of God anywhere else. The grace of God is found in Jesus. Is that not why Paul begins his letters by referring to it? Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How plentiful is the supply. Even when he was here on earth, he was full of grace and truth. And up there in heaven, this handsome man, 
has got something to say all the time. And everything he says is full of grace. Words of comfort, words of forgiveness, words of blessing. It's good to listen to him. Because he doesn't just say them. He gives what he says. And then there's his, lastly, his endless blessing. He's blessed forever, exalted forever, the highest place forever. His blessings, I suppose, are innumerable. We sang about a couple of them in the Psalms we were singing. He's been glorified. He asked for it. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. Who else could make that petition? But he could, and he did, and he's experienced it. In how much glory did he have before the foundation of the world? Well, whatever it was, he had all of it. And it's now his. He's also got great joy, doesn't he? Psalm 16 that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost, as Jesus speaks to his Father In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. And up there in heaven, this handsomest of men, who speaks the most wonderful of words, is the happiest person there. And he's been given assurance, of course, hasn't he? His father said to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Nothing's going to remove him from where he is. He's there forever. That's what he's been blessed with. But is he going to share it? That's the question, isn't it? What about his bride? Well, he says in that same prayer where he prayed for his own glory, he said, the glory that you have given me, I have given them. Haven't got it yet, all of them. But there are millions of them, their souls in heaven now glorified. But they're waiting for the glorification of their body. And so are we. To be like Jesus not merely in the sense of aspiration of living a higher life, but the experience of glorification. That's what we were made for. 
we're going to get it if we trust in him. How about joy? Do we get any of his joy? You know, there are lots of people who are very happy with what they got, but they don't give anything to anyone. How about Jesus? Well, what did he say to his disciples, even on the night when he was arrested? My joy I give to you. And in the river that's flowing from the heavenly throne down to earth, that picture that occurs repeatedly in the Bible, a picture of the Holy Spirit, what does he give? What is transported down this river? Well, one of the things that's flowing continually is joy. Even as Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's extraordinary, isn't it, how often the word joy occurs in the book of Acts. It's almost a constant refrain. Great joy in the city. The Ethiopian chancellor went on his way rejoicing. It's impossible, isn't it, in a real sense to meet Jesus and not receive these blessings. He's got a kingdom. Is he going to be the only king? He'll certainly be the main king. There's no doubt about that. But is he going to be the only one? His inheritance. He's got joint heirs. And they with him will have the kingdom. That's what he's going to say in the day of judgment, isn't it? Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And since he's blessed forever, his people will be blessed forever. As we close, what do you think of Jesus? Do you love him with a real, fresh love? Is he most beautiful? Does he fill your vision? Do his promises cheer your heart? There's no one like him. He is the most handsome of men. And he always will be. Even among the glorified. There's only one that is the most handsome. And that's Jesus. 
shall we pray?